1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 12 to 58. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, 
there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. I wonder how you're feeling about lockdown as we get into the end of the second month. I wonder how you reacted to the Prime Minister's announcement last week. Or if you're from another country, what's, whatever announcements have been made in your home nation. Now, the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns that we've experienced all around the world are doing interesting things in our lives. To a certain extent, this unique situation is exposing our hopes and the things that we've rested our lives in. Two friends from our church were planning to get married in June, just in a few weeks. They've been building up to this moment for months, planning it for months. In fact, they've been building up to this moment for years. And now it's all up in the air. Will they even be able to get married then? Now, how do we respond when our plans are thwarted? Your plans for your education or your work, your plans for a relationship, even plans for holidays and recreation. What happens when they're thwarted and what does your response reveal about you? Human beings, it turns out, are uniquely hope-based creatures we need to know what we're looking forward to at the core of our being we're not just a swirling mass of emotions we are a collection of hopes and being hope-based creatures if we're going to live well then we need to know and identify what our hopes are and see how they influence us and even control us the book of proverbs in the old testament says hope deferred makes the heart sick but longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Now the importance of hope is seen in many things in history, perhaps most poignantly in the, the Soviet prisoners in the mid-20th century labour camps called the Gulag. It has been said that there were only two kinds of prisoners in those camps, those who had hope and those who did not. 
Gustav Herling was a Polish prisoner. He was in the Gulag, moved around various camps, and he wrote these words. It is only too understandable that a man, robbed of everything but hope, should begin his day by turning his thoughts to hope. Soviet prisoners have been deprived even of hope, for not one of them can ever know with any certainty when his sentence will come to an end. During my year and a half in the camp, only a few times did I hear prisoners counting aloud the number of years, months, days and hours which still remained of their sentences. Hope contains the terrible danger of disappointment. Did you notice that last sentence? Hope contains the terrible danger of disappointment. Hope, it, it, it's something we live for, but we, if it's disappointed, it's terrible. You, maybe some of you know what that tastes like. It's a bitter taste. So we find ourselves, on the one hand, desperately needing hope, but on the other hand, fearing that the hope might not be as strong as we want it to be. Hope must be in the right thing because of this terrible danger. Now, Christianity is built on hope. And Christians believe that our hope is sure and certain because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Sam Albury's written an excellent book. I'll actually just show it to you here called Lifted. This is a book about the resurrection life. And Sam Albury says in his book, this sort of hope that the resurrection gives us makes living possible for it gives us a future. Now, in this last month, we've been looking in, in a series about the doctrine of the resurrection. We've learned that the resurrection isn't just for Easter, it's for the whole of life. We thought about the resurrection uh, means the death of death. Uh, Jesus' response to his friend Lazarus, who was gravely ill, uh, was to show his power over death and how he felt about it. Jesus wept and grieved because death was seen as an intruder into his creation and his power over it revealed his glory. Then we thought about resurrection confidence, the empty tomb of Jesus and the eyewitness accounts, multiple accounts of eyewitness testimony give us solid confidence that this event really happened as Jesus said it would. And that means that we know Jesus is who he says he is and he's accomplished everything he said he would do. The resurrection is like God's signature on the package of salvation and forgiveness and acceptance that Jesus promised he would achieve by being a ransom from the dead. It's God receiving the package and signing for it. And then we thought last week about resurrection change, how the resurrection gives a power to change that is not found anywhere else in our lives. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, God releases a new power into the life of a Christian to change. How? Well, first of all, he, he, he raises us to new life spiritually and gives us this new birth. And then he gives us a new perspective or a new vision, a totally transformed idea and concept and identity of who we are. We are now people who are in Christ. We've been raised with him and our old life died with him. And then flowing right out of that, we thought of new habits, habit in the sense of practices that we put on and things that we don't do anymore. We put off things in our lives that we put to death consciously, things that we pursue Habits also, as, as clothes that we put on, he's given us a whole new wardrobe of virtues to wear. We put these things off, on and put to death. And now this week we're turning to a fourth crucial aspect of the doctrine of the resurrection. And this week we see that the resurrection gives a Christian believer a hope that you can build a life on. A hope that you can build a life on. And to the degree that this is real to your heart, 
then this hope will influence you, control you, shape you, and you will be set free from fear and despair right now. This hope is guaranteed, it's embodied, and it's cosmic. Guaranteed, embodied, and cosmic. And those are my three points today, mostly in 1 Corinthians 15, but we will take a, a detour into Romans chapter 8 at the end. Firstly, the hope is guaranteed, the resurrection hope. Now, one of the main objections to religious faith is that it's basically wishful thinking. We live in a society now in which many people view Christian faith as a kind of needy projection for dependent people, sort of projecting our wishes onto Jesus and hoping that he'll fulfil them. But here in 1 Corinthians, it's one of the earliest letters written in the New Testament times, we find the Apostle Paul engaging with objections to the resurrection right there in, in the middle of the first century. Now, at the very least, that warns us against a kind of simplistic assumption that ancient people were just more gullible than we are. And it also warns us against simply believing whatever our cultural moment tells us is acceptable to believe, a process that's also known as groupthink. In first century Greece, their cultural moment meant that it just was, from the start, almost impossible to believe that someone would literally rise from the dead. And that was because their culture had a negative view of the body and the physical world, which was seen as shabby and dirty and inferior to the realm of the spirit. And that meant that any teaching about resurrection seemed bizarre and certainly unnecessary. In fact, they assumed an a priori assumption that there was no resurrection from the dead. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, deals with it head on in our reading. If you look at, back to your Bible there, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13, he says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So if it's an assumption that no one could possibly be raised, then obviously Jesus Christ himself was not raised. And the outflowing of that is devastating for Christian faith. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. You see the argument here, if Jesus Christ is not actually literally bodily raised, then Christian preaching is useless. Actually, it's false. The gospel is fake news. The apostles have got it completely wrong. Their beliefs are incorrect. They're actually witnesses who've testified false testimony. Now, why should this be the case? Why should it be so important that this is true? And that's, the answer is because Christianity has a special relationship with history. What we believe is bound up with particular historical events. That's not true for lots of other belief systems, for example, Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't stand or fall on the, the life of Gautama Buddha. But this is true for Christianity. This faith is grounded in history. And Paul shows how seriously uh, personal this is for him in verses 31 to 32. He says, I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? See, Paul had bet his life on the fact that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. That's Paul. But you know, there's a second implication in these verses, and it's found in verse 16 to 19. If Jesus Christ is still dead, then Christians are in big trouble. 
have a look at verse 16. For if the dead is not, are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. There is such a thing as futile faith. I sometimes meet non-believing people who, who say things to me like, oh, I wish I had your faith, Mike. It must be great to have a faith and be, have uh, you know, such comforting thoughts about life and the future. But the point is, there is some faith that is worthless. If it is possible to be sincere about your faith and to be sincerely wrong. Paul says if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. It's futile. And why is that? Because he continues there in that verse, uh, you're still in your sins. Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. In other words, Christians believe that because Jesus died and was raised from the dead, their sins are forgiven and that those who have died will be accepted by God in the future. There's no fear of judgment for them in the final day. But if Jesus actually has never really risen from the dead, if he's still buried in a tomb somewhere in Palestine, then we have nothing to base that on. If Christ is still dead and buried, there's no point to being a Christian. Sincerity makes no difference. We may believe sincerely that God loves us and accepts us because of Jesus, and Jesus teaching that he would offer himself as a ransom. But if his death was the end of it, then we've got no reason to believe his crucifixion achieved anything. There has been no victory over sin. There's no forgiveness with God. There is no future hope. Death still reigns. I don't know if you know the, uh, the game Jenga. We discovered a box of this in our house recently, a few weeks ago, and had some fun playing it on Sunday afternoon. In Jenga, you, you have a load of wooden blocks. They're all the same kind of size and, and, and length and shape. In fact, they have to be identical for it to work. And you build a, a tower of the blocks. And the game is that it play, players take turns to pull out one block after another and see who is the one that pulls out the block and that makes the whole tower collapse. And of course, it goes down in a great crash. Now, Paul here in, in 1 Corinthians 15 is doing theological Jenga. He's saying, if you pull out the block of the resurrection, the whole tower is going down. You haven't got a Christianity worth believing in. It's that serious. But, verse 20, he continues, Christ has indeed been risen from the dead. He is indeed raised. And the reason given here is rooted in God's way of dealing with humanity through a representative. Paul says, death came into the human race through the first man, Adam. It was not part of God's original design. Death is an intruder. Death is our great enemy. And now the resurrection from the dead comes through one man again. The final Adam, Jesus Christ, who is the representative of many, many people and a multitude that no one could number. In other words, Jesus is the first of many. Twice here, Paul uses this word first fruits. You see it there in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, what is the first fruits? His readers would have been very familiar with this language. Uh, they lived in a, in a culture that was largely agricultural. And this is an image drawn from farming. The first fruits was the initial part of the harvest, the part that was brought into the barn first to show that the harvest was coming, that it was successful, that the crops were coming through. And the first fruits shows there's more to come. It guarantees it. 
Now, the resurrection of Jesus in this passage is the guarantee and the display of what is for come, what is to come for all those who trust in him. And this is all built on those solid historical foundations that we considered earlier in this series. The empty tomb and the multiple facts and witnesses built around that. And then the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus given through eyewitness testimony and written down in order. Now we here we see why they keep emphasising that it really happened. Because the whole edifice, the whole tower of Christian teaching stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the outcome, the main point of all this is, is here. As Jesus rose, so will all his people. Verse 23, each in turn. Christ, he's the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. All those who've trusted in Jesus Christ will rise as he did. So therefore, this is not the kind of hope that is largely wishful thinking. You know, I really hope that I might be able to get away and have a summer holiday this year, but I've actually got no control over whether that's possible or not. That's wishful thinking. This is a strong living hope. It has a life of its own. The Apostle Peter, writing in, in another place, says in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see the logic there? Uh, praise God, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection. This hope, you see, is built on a particular event that has happened. And because the event has happened, the Christian's hope is guaranteed. It's secure. It's a living hope. It has a life of its own. It can endure even the worst experiences of your life. It's not contingent upon you and your life in any way. It is grounded and guaranteed in the resurrection of Jesus. That's the first aspect of our hope for the future, for a life beyond the grave, is that it's guaranteed by the resurrection. Now, the second aspect is very interesting, and it's this. Our hope is embodied. It's a physical material hope. Now I wonder what comes into your mind when somebody mentions the word heaven. The stereotype of bygone years was a realm of blue skies with some strategically placed pretty clouds and some rosy-cheeked winged babies, cherubs, playing harps. Perhaps to other people heaven is quite vague but it's definitely populated with friends and family who've gone before. But we're never really sure what heaven will be like or what on earth we would be doing for all that time. Do you remember the, the Christmas carol once in Royal David City? I always laugh when I sing the final verse. It says this, Not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by we shall see him, but in heaven set at God's right hand on high, where like stars his children crowned, wait for it, all in white shall wait around. Okay, that's what we're going to be doing. Dressed in white, crowned and waiting around. Now, some people imagine heaven will be a kind of endless church service and they sincerely hope that they won't end up in it. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, we find the next significant point about the Christian hope. And it's not that kind of heaven. It is an embodied future. 
as Jesus rose physically, remember, then so will all his people. Now at once, all sorts of questions start to flood into our minds. What kind of body are we talking about here? Um, will it really look like me? Will people recognise me? Will I still wear glasses? Maybe I'd want to because I've worn glasses for my whole life and no one would know me. Will I have grey hair? Will it kind of be rewound to the physical peak of my life? When was the physical peak of my life? It's very hard to say. Will I maybe have a six pack? Or, like Henry Cavill, Superman, an eight pack? We start to wonder all these things. Now, Paul anticipates our curiosity. If you look at verse 35, he says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? <laughs> of course, we've just been asking that very question. And he responds, first of all, how foolish. Verse 36. How foolish. Now, that might seem a little bit harsh. But the point he's making here is to warn against idle speculation. It is daft to worry about the details of what that body might be like. But it is not daft to reflect on the positive teaching about the resurrection body. And there are three things to look at here. Look at nature, look at Jesus, and look at the contrasts. Look at nature, look at Jesus, look at the contrast. Firstly, look at nature. Verse 36, Paul continues. Um, well, let's pick up in uh, yeah, 36. How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Now, sowing seed. We're, most of us watching this probably aren't farmers, but we're familiar with seed going into the ground. We probably buy it from a shop in a packet. And that seed will not grow into something unless the seed dies. When you buy some seed, you put it in the ground or put it in some soil, you bury it and you cover it and the seed dies. That seed will not come out again, will it? It will not be seen again as it, want, as it was. But out of it grows something much greater. A plant, a flower, a shrub, maybe even a tree out of a single seed. In other words, the seed must die before new life can come. Paul says... Death is a condition of resurrection. Our bodies need to die before they can be raised to a new kind of physical life. And verse 37 continues, what you get out isn't the same as what you put in. Now, Paul here mentions uh, wheat. Uh, it could be any kind of crops. My kids currently, some of them are growing cress. I think kids do cress at school because it's pretty much the easiest thing to grow. It seems to be able to flourish on a little bit of cotton wool in the bottom of a cup. And the seeds are absolutely tiny. You can barely see them with the naked eye. They bear no resemblance at all to what's going to grow afterward. A carrot seed doesn't look like a really small orange carrot. It looks totally different. You wouldn't know it was a carrot, actually, a carrot seed, unless someone told you. But, verse 38, God gives to each the body that he has determined. And Paul turns now from looking at seed and things going into the ground, into the heavenly bodies. Verse 39, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendour of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendour of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendour, 
the moon another, the stars another, and star differs from star in splendour. You see what he's getting at here? Think about all the bodies that God has made. The bodies of birds and fish and animals. The bodies of the sun, the moon, the stars in their countless hosts. God knows what he's doing when it comes to giving the right kind of body to the right thing or the right person. So do you really think that the creator will struggle to find you the right kind of body in the resurrection? Look at nature. Secondly, look at Jesus. Here's the first fruits, the example of what a resurrection body will look like. Now we have a small amount of information, but we do have some facts. If we rise physically just as Jesus did, what do we learn from his body? Well, we learn first of all that there was continuity. There was some scarring. Jesus had endured scarring in his crucifixion. And he indicates to Thomas that those scars were still visible. There was a recognisable face. It was actually a recognisable voice. People knew it was Jesus when he spoke. He walked. He went out of the beach. He met people. He sat down with them. He talked. He ate and drank. There was continuity with the body we now have. But there was also discontinuity. Jesus' nature seemed to be different from what it was before. He seemed to be able to pass through locked doors into a room. He suddenly appeared and disappeared. He was less bound by our physical limits. His body had changed. No longer would it age or decay. It was a new kind of body. Now this is some indication of what we have to look forward to. It will be recognisably you, it will be authentically you, but it will be a transformed you, a glorious body. Actually we might say the most authentic you that there will ever be. Now what kinds of changes will these be? Let's look at the contrasts. Verses 42 to 44 gives us a series of contrasts between the bodies we now have and those we will have in the future. I'll pick up in verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Four kinds of contrasts are made here. Perishable, sown perishable but raised imperishable. Now we're all way too familiar with the idea of being perishable, of things having a shelf life, a sell-by date. You know that light bulbs, uh, kettles, toasters, these things that we buy, they've actually got a built-in obsolescence so that they will eventually go kaput so that you have to go back and buy another one from the shop. Built-in obsolescence. Our bodies have that too. They only function for a limited time. Then they start to slow down, wear out, decay and die. Maybe some of you are getting very conscious of slowing down. <laughs> My wife and I have been talking recently about the effects of middle age, which, let me tell you, for the most part, aren't great. Uh, one of the things that we've resolved to try not to do is do the middle-aged groan, which is a meaningless sigh that middle-aged people uh, make when they stand up it goes like this oh <laughs> it's completely pointless but it's an aspect of our perishability 
Now, the resurrection body, it says here, is imperishable. It will not slow down, decay and die like that. Secondly, from dishonourable to glorious. Well, we all know that we've used our bodies, sadly, for dishonourable purposes. Our lips have been used to say things we should not have said. Our hands have been used to do things that we should not have done. Our eyes have looked at things and lusted at things we should not have beheld. Our ears have been used to listen to gossip and slander and lies and to believe them about other people. Our bodies in every part have been used for wicked purposes. Romans 6 says we've offered the parts of our bodies as instruments of wickedness. And our bodies have suffered because of sin as well. We've, we've sometimes abused and misused our own body and not stewarded it as we should. Perhaps through our diet, perhaps through addiction, perhaps through overindulgence in things. Our bodies have been bruised by ourselves and by other people. We perhaps bear the scars of things that have hurt us. Our bodies have been misused and they are dishonourable. But the new body, it says here, will be raised in glory. It won't bear the marks and memories of sin. It will shine. Third contrast, from weak to powerful. Can I ask you right there where you are at home, just raise your hand if you're currently on medication and now, those of you who haven't raised your hand, can I ask you to raise your hand if you've used medicine in the last month? What about the last year? Our bodies are weak, aren't they? Whether we're talking about allergies, infections, illness, disability, or various physical ailments, perhaps things we were born with, we're so weak. We spend one third of our lives asleep. Not so the new body. Verse 43, Paul says it will be raised in power. It will not be weak or limited. Our strength will be renewed, boundless. We will soar like eagles. We will run and not grow weary. The fourth contrast is from natural to spiritual. Verse 44, obviously the body will still be physical. He's been making that point all along. But it will not belong to the current realm of nature, this world of decay and death. Our body at the moment is made from the dust of the fallen world. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. From ashes to ashes, dust to dust, says the funeral service. Our body is the appropriate vessel for this realm, for this kind of life. But the resurrection body will be spiritual. That is to say, supernatural. It will be the perfect vessel for glorifying God in a new creation. If you took all of the greatest human resources and technology at the moment in this world and tried to apply them to make your body wonderful, it wouldn't even come close to this, it wouldn't touch it. It will be fit for a new order in a renewed creation. Look at the, the contrasts, perishable to imperishable, dishonourable to glorious, from weak to powerful, from natural to spiritual. Tim Keller writes, you see, there's a real you, a true self down inside you. But then there are all the flaws and the weaknesses that bury and mar and hide it. But the Christian hope is that the love and holiness of God will burn it all away. On that day, we're going to see each other and say, I always knew you could be like this. I saw glimpses of it. I saw flashes of it. Now just look at you. It's an embodied hope 
That should put a smile on your face, shouldn't it? Christian hope is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus and it's embodied. Thirdly, and sadly, rather quickly because of time again, it is cosmic. It is cosmic. Let's uh, turn over to Romans chapter 8. I think my trusty and able colleague Dan is going to bring this up on screen. I'm going to read one of the great chapters. Just a section about the future glory. Romans 8 verse 18. I consider, says Paul, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Wonderful passage. Just think for a moment about some of the most majestic and beautiful things in the natural world. Maybe you've seen some of them. Many years ago when I was a student, I was traveling in northern Wisconsin in the United States, in the Midwest, very far north. And with my friends, we went out uh, in a boat at night on a lake. And there up above, I saw the northern lights. I'd never seen them before or since. I may never see them again. I never saw anything like it. Flickering, purple, beautiful lights up there in the sky, far away, evanescent, gorgeous. More recently, our family was fortunate to go on a, a holiday to rural Portugal, to the most obscure part of Portugal, the wine-growing region. And there we were in the height of a heat wave, which was very, very hot. And at night, we would go out to cool ourselves off in the swimming pool and lay back in the pool and look up at a black night sky, the like of which I've never seen before, because I'd never realised there were so many stars that you could see. And that seeing a shooting star was not a one-off, but frequent. And we were able to gaze at the Milky Way. Have you ever seen mountains? Have you ever seen a sunset that made your heart skip a beat? Have you ever seen a beautiful, amazing bird? Maybe something really small or something majestic. Oceans. Animals. Fields. Hills. Streams. Rivers. God has made a beautiful world. This creation... We're thinking a lot at the moment about the resurrection and about ourselves, but what about the world, the environment, about nature? Does it have a future? And this passage says an emphatic yes. It's all part of God's plan. God who made the world in the first place and made it good and declared it good will not scrap it and do away with it in the future. He will renew all things. And this passage talks about the groaning of creation, almost like it's going through childbirth and the pangs of labour. Because creation, it says, has been subjected to frustration as well. The world that we experience is not the world that God originally designed. It's a world of famine 
a world of earthquakes and natural disasters, of tsunamis. Some parts of the world are absolutely um, dry and, and bone dry and can't grow crops. Other parts have floods. There's, a, there's an imbalance. There's something in the creation that's broken. And even some of the most beautiful parts of the world are actually very dangerous to human beings to go there because of the creatures that are there or because of the, the, the al alkaline nature of the water or because of toxins. Here it says that the whole of creation will be renewed and we're groaning and looking forward to that day and that creation is waiting for the redemption of our bodies. You see how Paul ties it all together here. The resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits, guarantees our hope of a future embodied existence in the creation, which God himself will renew. And we will see just what God will do through that. The world's future is also bound up in our resurrection hope. And this is why Christians should be at the forefront of those who care about the environment, because our God cares about the environment. The resurrection hope is a guaranteed hope. It's an embodied hope and it's cosmic. Now, if the knowledge of this future was always present in our minds, would we become as anxious and as depressed as we often are? Are we like those children who've grown up in a slum, making mud pies and playing with the dust, who can't imagine what a day out at the beach would be like because it's just too glorious? Lift up your eyes. Why would we ever think about revenge or payback or simmer with resentment for people who have wronged us when you know that you are going to get far more in the future than you could ever possibly dare to ask or imagine? Why would we live like that? It's so petty. Why would we, in this life, gaze upon another person's beauty or talent or possessions or relationships and be full of envy? when we know what God has got stored up for us personally, individually in the future. This hope is transforming. This hope is transforming. It can change who you are right now and it really will change who you are in the future. Let me show how the resurrection makes all the difference with a, an anecdote to finish my message today. <coughs> in the year 1899, Two famous American men died. One was an unbeliever and he'd made a career out of debunking the Bible and arguing against Christian doctrines. His name was Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll, after whom the Ingersoll Lectures at Harvard University were named. And he was a, a sceptic, profoundly sceptical man. But he died suddenly and his death came as an unmitigated shock to his family. Ingersoll's body was kept in the home for longer than normal, several days, because his wife couldn't bear to part with him. Finally, his body had to be removed because the corpse was decaying and the health of the family was at risk. At length, his remains were cremated and the display at the crematorium was so dismal and sad that some of it was even picked up and reported by the national newspapers. Ingersoll had used his great mind to deny the resurrection of Jesus. But when death came, there was no hope. His departure was received by his relatives and friends as an uncompensated tragedy. The same year, 1899, another American died. His name was Dwight Moody. And Moody was a Christian evangelist. 
a preacher. His death was actually triumphant, both for himself and for his family. He'd been declining for some time and the family had taken turns to be with him at his bedside. And on the morning of his death, his son, who was standing by the bedside, heard his dad exclaim, Earth is receding, heaven is opening, God is calling. You're dreaming, father, the son said. But Moody answered, no, Will, this is no dream. I've been within the gates. I've seen the children's faces. And for a while it seemed as if Moody was reviving, but he began to slip away again. And he said, is this death? This is not bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. And by this time, his daughter had come into the room and was standing there as well. And she began to pray for his recovery. But he said, no, no, Emma, don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it. Shortly after that, Moody died and was received into heaven. And at the funeral, the family and friends joined in a joyful service. They sang hymns. They spoke. They heard these words proclaimed from the end of our passage. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Moody's death was part of that victory, and your death can be too, because Jesus rose from the dead, and he gives us a living hope. New birth into a living hope that is guaranteed, that is embodied, and is actually cosmic. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great grace to us in giving us these scriptures and giving us an enduring and reliable word, absolutely faithful, that we would not have believed unless it had come from you. Thank you for the resonance that it gives in our hearts today. Help us to live in the light of your resurrection, we pray. Amen.